uh, and what's behind them. And just like a tree, uh, what you see is one part of it, but there's a huge part that you don't see. Uh, last week we talked about baptism. Uh, this morning we're talking about Lord's Supper, which is why we have our elements that are out here. We're actually going to spend two weeks talking about the Lord's Supper because there's, uh, frankly, we could spend the rest of the summer talking about uh, the Lord's Supper because there's a lot for us to talk about here. Uh, and what I want to do is I want to look at it from one perspective this week and then look at it from another perspective later on um, uh, next week as we get into it next week. Um, so there's a, there's a lot here for us, and then we'll end this morning by taking uh, the Lord's Supper together. We'll actually take it two weeks in, in a row here. Uh, recently, there was some, some new research. I don't know if you guys saw any of this, but there was some uh, new research released about uh, religious affiliation in America. Uh, something that a lot of people would probably just move right by, but something is uh, very much of interest to me. It was, uh, it was some, some, some research that was both troubling, uh, but also very uh, revealing. And I think it can teach us a lot about where we are as a country, and even more so where we are headed as a country. Some of the most telling stats is that, uh, quote-unquote, white evangelicals, uh, the category that I think most of us would fit in, uh, are decreasing uh, and have been decreasing for well over a decade, while those that would claim no religious affiliation at all, what we would call, uh, what, what researchers call the, the nuns, so they would select none as far as religious affiliation, uh, is somewhere around 25%. Uh, so 25% of Americans would claim no religious affiliation whatsoever uh, on, in, in this research. But what is troubling is the next number, and I think maybe the most telling of all the stats, and it's a wealth of data that you can mine and that you can go through, uh, is that those born after 1990, so uh, those born after 1990, that number would claim no religious affiliation. That number is over 40%. Over 40%. So those that are 30 and younger in this survey would claim, uh, would claim over 40% would, would, would claim no religious affiliation, and consistently that number is growing and growing exponentially. It's growing uh, in every, every time one of these surveys is released, 40%. Apart from a drastic change in the religious practices of most of America uh, due to a revival or some other event to change religious uh, practice, we are becoming a secular country. We are becoming a country that is not rooted in any type of faith. I'm not just talking about Christianity. I'm talking about any type of faith. We are becoming a secular country. By the time my kids are my age, we can say pretty safely, apart from a change, most Americans will not be affiliated with a church or an organized religious institution. Secular, however, does not mean not spiritual. Those two things are not necessarily the same thing. The vast majority of those that would claim no religious affiliation would still affirm that they pray, they worship, they ascribe to the teachings of some religious figure or participate in a religious practice like, uh, like meditation or prayer. So in short, our country is increasingly uh, rejecting what we do here on Sunday mornings, what we do here together in favor of uh, a kind of a hodgepodge of spirituality from different uh, religions, different, uh, different teachers, different things, some old, some new, but they are rejecting the organized, formal approach, what we are doing 
in favor of just kind of bringing everything in together. But what they end up doing is basically creating a religion for themselves, and they kind of pick and choose a hodgepodge of different teachings to best fit what kind of feels right to them. There's all kinds of surveys out there that would echo this and that would, uh, that w- that would talk about this. So there's, there, this is not just one, uh, one study that says this. It's all over the place that you see this. That people are just kind of picking and choosing and they are borrowing from different things and creating essentially their own personal religion based on their own personal preferences and their own perceived needs. So what do we make of that as a church? Uh, it can be easy for us to shake our heads. It can be easy for us to kind of kind of wag our heads a little bit and say, shame, shame. You know, what are these people doing? America has lost its way, especially the young people in America. They are, they are awful. What is going on here? And we can wring our hands over the spiritual direction of uh, America. And certainly, I think lament is probably an appropriate response to this study. But it can also be easy to, to assume that, that America is uh, rejecting what we do here because of the cross, because, of, because of, of calling out sin, because of demanding repentance, because of uh, all the things that, that Paul says that the cross will be a stumbling block to those that don't know Jesus. It can be easy to say that that is what is pushing people away. But I think if we're honest, then I think we could all probably... Uh, if, if we're all honest with one another in here this morning, we can say that I don't think it's the cross that is pushing people away from the, the organized religion from the church in America. Unfortunately, I don't think people ever quite make it to the cross for it to become the stumbling block because we have placed way more stumbling blocks in their way before they ever make it to the one that should actually be there. I don't think people are rejecting us because we demand repentance. I think they're rejecting us for far other reasons. So what do we make of this? What do we do as a church? If we sit back and we kind of recognize this and we say, here we are, Providence Church in Jefferson City, Tennessee, how do we respond to this kind of dire sounding numbers? Should we change what we do to kind of allow more freedom and more like kind of pick and choose some different Things. Should we pitch being a Christian in different terms and in a different light? This was certainly the strategy for many churches throughout the 90s and early 2000s. It's called a seeker-sensitive movement. Kind of couch Christianity in a better way, market it a little bit better. Talk about all the benefits of being a Christian. Should we make things like membership, salvation, being part of the church easier? Remove some of those things that kind of make us feel a little bit like kind of stodgy and closed off. That's how a retail consumer-based market would respond, right? A retail consumer-based market, what does a good business do? They remove the, the, the things that keep you from spending money at their place. They make it easier for you to spend money there. Is that how we should respond to those things, make it easier for people to consume our product? I mean, after all, we're broadcasting this online. Shouldn't we promote that and put that out there and say, hey, just go and donate. You can take in the teaching online. You can take what you want. You can take what you like. uh, And then you can go somewhere else on YouTube and get you a little something else that you like. Is that how we we should go forward with some things? There are plenty of people out there saying, absolutely, that's how we should do it. We should adjust to the market. We should adjust to a changing culture. And that's exactly how we should do things. 
Now, to answer that question, what do we do? There's a lot that we have to sort through. But I want to go to a time in Jesus' ministry when things were reaching a new level for him. When he had the opportunity to take his ministry and make it expand in, in, in ways that perhaps the world has never seen a religious movement expand. When Jesus had the, 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 this, this special kind of moment and he could have taken and run with it. I want to see what Jesus did with it. And then perhaps when we see what Jesus did with it, we can know a little bit better how we should respond to a moment like this as we are at a crossroads because Jesus was at uh, something of a crossroads in his ministry. So to set the stage for what's happening in John chapter 6 as we get here, Jesus' ministry was just beginning to really gain public steam. He had come out, he had been baptized, he had begun teaching and doing some healings. He had been kind of going from town to town, but really kind of like small towns, kind of uh, out of the way towns, kind of going to these smaller places. And, and he began kind of doing some, some healings and, and, and people started to kind of take notice. What's going on with this guy? What is this guy doing? People started asking questions. There was a buzz about Jesus. He was kind of the new guy on the block, and people were asking uh, questions. So this began kind of a pretty big moment. And then we have what's known as the feeding of the 5,000. That's what it kind of goes down as in your Bible, but it was probably eight to 10,000 people that were there. The 5,000 is just the men that were there. So this is probably at least eight to 10,000 people, and he had fed these 5,000 people through a miracle. He had done this very public very obvious miracle, and he had done it while teaching to a very, very large crowd. Now people were really taking notice. Jesus had everything. If Jesus was here to start a revolution, which many assumed he was, especially his disciples assumed that he was, if he was the Messiah, then this was his chance. Strike while the iron is hot. He's performed these miracles. He's gotten the attention of the people. If he's here to start a revolution, this is a great way to get an army. Jesus has what every church and every church planter wants. He's got buzz. He's got word of mouth marketing. He's got talk. He's got, he's got the, the, the community talking about him. He has the, 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 the M word. He has momentum. Jesus has got it going for him right now. It's time to just kind of throw the match on the gasoline and let this ministry take off. So what does Jesus do? Well, he starts at the end of this miracle where he fed the 5,000. He starts not by striking while the iron is hot, but instead actually letting it cool a little bit. He backs away. He retreats and he goes to pray for a long time. Then privately, and that's important here, privately he comes to his disciples who are out on the water and he walks to them on the water. Seems to me that if Jesus were a better marketer, he would have performed this miracle while he had his crowd. Not whenever it's just his disciples who are already there with him, but instead he does it privately just in front of them, walks on water and walks to, to them. That's a cool miracle. He could have gotten a lot of play out of that. Even better, it would have been better if he had just waited until YouTube was around so that he could, have, he could have shown this to the world. Why did he have to come before YouTube was invented? He could have invented YouTube so that we could have gotten this out there and this video could have gone viral. This miracle is not going to advance his cause at all. Even as 
cool as it is walking on water, it's not going to help his cause at all. It's not going to pull in any new followers. This is for the benefit of just the select few. But then he goes to this synagogue. He goes to this synagogue in, uh, in Capernaum and, and for his very first Sabbath teaching following this big miracle of feeding the, the, the 10,000. He's obviously got a very interested crowd. You can imagine if somebody here in Jefferson City uh, had been, you know, like at, at, at the lake uh, on the 4th of July and a big crowd had kind of gathered around and he had uh, fed everyone that was there with just the bare bones here, which is a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish and fed everyone there. And then he comes to teach here on a Sunday, then I think a lot of people would be like, I need to hear what this dude's got to say because he did something pretty crazy. This place would be a full house. He shows up to teach at the synagogue because that's what he does. These people are there. They're ready to hear what he has to say. So let's see how Jesus capitalizes on this momentum he has from this miracle that he has done. We'll start in John chapter 6, verse 24. <clears throat> so the crowd is gathered, but Jesus isn't quite there yet. And it says, when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So they figured out, all right, he's teaching over there in Capernaum. I'm going to go where he is. I'm going to get in my boat. I'm going to follow him over there because I want to hear what he has to say. Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So Jesus, very quickly, very quickly kind of comes at him and, and, and realizes that this following is beginning to develop, that there's this, like, uh, this kind of caravan, this armada of boats coming behind him to figure out where he's at. But he calls them out for their motives right off the bat. He calls him out for why they're there. They're not there because they believe that Jesus is something great, but because they see him as a means to an end. They see him as somebody who can provide something for them. They know, they realize they can get something out of this guy, Jesus. If he gave us bread and fish before, perhaps he's got some other miracles in his bag there. Perhaps he's got some, uh, some, some bags of money he can make show up at my feet. Perhaps he's got some other things that he can do. And Jesus calls them out for this. He says, this bread that you guys have eaten, well, you're going to be hungry again, and that's why you're here, because you want more stuff from me. But I'm here to tell you, the stuff that I've got to give you, the stuff I've got to give you is going to last a lot longer than just that bread that I gave you. So if you're just here looking to, to fill your stomachs for the moment, you're here for the wrong reason. Don't come to me because of what you can get from me. There's a whole sermon there that I'm not even going to be able to preach. But it's a very easy one to see. We come to Jesus far too often because of what we think we can manipulate him into giving us. Not because we are coming to him to worship him. He calls him out for that. He says, if you're coming to me, you're coming to me for me. Let me tell you who I am. You came for bread. Let me tell you the kind of bread that I am. And so Jesus continues, and I want you to listen. We're going to read a pretty big chunk here, in verse, starting in verse 47. I, we can read the whole thing. There's a lot here, but honestly, it gets a little bit confusing. But we'll, we'll skip down a little bit, and we'll get to verse 47, where he's kind of landing the plane. He's kind of bringing it home. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. 
Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that no one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus, that's a fair question, right? How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. This is a very dark sermon Jesus is giving here all of a sudden. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died, the manna he talked about to start with. Whoever feeds on the bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So how does Jesus capitalize on this momentum of feeding 10,000 people in a very public way? How does he gain more momentum? How does he gain more followers? How does he, he, how does he start to establish this army for his revolution? He makes a super cryptic, really weird, really dark speech about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. That's how he does it. I mean, I think we can all agree, when you read that in John chapter 6, it makes us all uncomfortable. It sounds like something from like a Dracula book. Like, it's like, what are you doing, Jesus? What, what is this? This is weird. And this is not like, well, you know, there's some stuff lost in translation here. That's not what's, I mean, they're saying it as he's teaching. They're like, how are we supposed to eat your flesh, Jesus? That's weird and disgusting. What are you talking about? That's how he does it. What in the world is Jesus doing right there? Why is this the sermon he gives right there? Why does he not give some sermon about the kingdom of God and about riding it on a horse and about the revolution that is to come? Man, he had these these people like hanging on his words. Why does he give this sermon at this moment about flesh and blood and eating flesh and drinking blood? It's just weird. Does he not know how to put together a rebellion? Does he not know how to rally an army? Does he not want more followers? I mean, after all, isn't that what we're supposed to be about as a church? More followers for Jesus? This is a terrible marketing move on his part. Terrible. And we're going to have to do some work whenever it comes to talking about eating, this, about, about this eating that Jesus is talking about. And, and I'll be honest with you, we're not going to get to all of that this week. We'll talk a lot more about that this week. For now, I just want you to see generally what Jesus is doing. When Jesus has a chance to grow his followers, to gain his popularity, when he has a chance to do this, he takes them to a meal in this super cryptic kind of weird teaching. He says that I want to give you a meal that will leave you sustained, that will leave you full, that not only will it leave you full, you will never die if you eat this meal. And this teaching would become, at least in part, the basis 
for the later instruction that he will give. We'll look at this here in just a minute in Luke chapter 22. It will become kind of the basis for the Passover meal and the institution of the Lord's Supper. It will be the institution of a new covenant. But he doesn't explain all of that here. He just kind of sets the table, so to speak, if you want to continue the metaphor. For now, as he kind of lays this out there, his response that he gets is not great. Look in John 6, verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. It's one of the saddest verses in all of Scripture. Verse 67, so Jesus said to the twelve, he turned to his apostles, to the closest disciples, and he says, do you want to walk away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So after Jesus lays this all out there for him, after Jesus, uh, again, this makes it clear, we're not losing something in translation here. I think just as weird as it sounds to us, just as off-putting as it is to us, it's just as off-putting to those that came to hear him in the synagogue at Capernaum. I think they're just as repulsed by it. I think they're just as confused by it. And whenever they realize, oh, wait, this guy's going to start talking in like metaphors or talking in this weird stuff, and I'm not actually going to get fed today, I'm done here. He's not going to help me out. He's not going to fill my stomach. He's not going to fill my pocketbook. He's not going to take care of me the way that I wanted him to. I wasted my time following him across the lake over here to, to hear what he has to say. I'm done. And they walked away. They realized that Jesus was not some vending machine to be shaken for goodies, but instead a man that came teaching And the things that he came teaching were hard, and they were demanding. They were difficult things to hear, and they walked away from this man, Jesus. But it's Peter's response that drives us a bit further this morning. It's his response that I'd throw out there as a question to myself or to anyone who would fit in those categories that I began the sermon with, those that would say that they are not affiliated, those that would say they are walking away. I would, I would put out there Peter's response as the ultimate question. To whom do you go for for the words of life? Do you go to yourself? Do you determine the best, the best possible place to go, the best possible way to find uh, your best life? Do you find that in your own self? Peter quickly realized, I can't, I can't find those words of eternal life. I can't find that hope of eternal life in myself. Jesus, I come to you because I don't know where else I would go. And I can't tell you how many times I have come to that very same place where I've had to ask the question, what am I doing here? What am I doing being a pastor? What am I doing being a Christian? What am I doing being involved in any of this? And the the question I come back to is, where else would I go? It is Jesus that has the words of eternal life. It is Jesus who will give us this. Peter recognizes this. Even in the midst of this weird teaching, Peter recognizes there is something here that I cannot walk away from. So what is it that Jesus is teaching that Peter cannot walk away from? His assessment is spot on. How did he get there? 
What is it about the words and this bread and juice and this flesh and blood that Peter recognizes as being so important? That Peter finds so life-giving? Well, if you want to understand that, then you have to understand the story that the Bible is telling. And you have to understand the story that Jesus is telling. There's a saying that's kind of developed in the the business world over the the last few years and that uh, we as Christians would do well to listen to. Uh, The the, the saying goes this, he who tells the best story wins. He who tells the best story wins. Unfortunately, these declining numbers that that I started with uh, uh, tied to, to church and church attendance. Unfortunately, the reason that people are walking away from Christianity and walking away from the church is because we are terrible at telling our story. We do not tell our story very well at all. Our story somewhere has become about power and politics and cover ups. Our story has become about the same thing that the world wants, but the world tells a better story for those things. And so people are walking away from Christianity not because of uh, of stumbling blocks and the cross and repentance. People are walking away from Christianity because what we are offering is not compelling at all. But that's not because the message isn't compelling. It's because we don't know the story ourselves. We've bought into some other story, some other lie. Think about how crazy that is. Think about how awful politics is. Think about how awful watching the news is and the mess that that is. And they are telling a better story for people to buy into than the church is. That's awful. That's shameful for us as a church. Man, I'm fine if people walk away from the church because of the cross. I'm not fine if people walk away from the church because we've married ourselves to politics, power, money, and cover-ups. We're telling a terrible story, but we have the story, the story with eternal life, the words of eternal life, as Peter said. That's the story we have to tell, and that's the story that Jesus is telling. And we do well if we knew it, and we knew it better. One of my favorite TV shows is uh, Anthony and Bourdain's uh, Parts Unknown. Any fans of that show, Anthony and Bourdain, Parts Unknown? Nobody? A few of you? All right, a few of you. All right, so if you've not seen this show, uh, unfortunately, Anthony Bourdain, the, the host of the show, he, 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 uh, he passed away a few, few years ago, um, and, and uh, he, so he, he died, but his show is so well done, it kind of keeps on going, and it's a beautiful concept. For the longest time, I thought that this show was just some, just this cool show with some really good storytelling until I realized a, a year or two ago that part of what makes the show so good is the stories that he tells, he does it in the same way that Jesus did. Now, he's not a Christian, he wasn't a Christian, but the model he puts forth is the same one that Jesus had, whether he knew it or not. And he's using it to tell a story. And what he does is he goes around to different cultures all over the world. Some in like cities, some in remote jungles, places you've never heard of. And what he does is he shows up and he truly desires to know these people's stories. To know who they are. And he wants to learn about them. And he does it over a meal. He's a chef. That's his, that was his training. And he sits down with people over a meal. He learns their cuisine. He learns how they cook. 
And then he cooks a meal, and they all come together, and they eat this food together, and they tell their stories, and they get to know one another. It's a beautiful story, and it's exactly how Jesus did ministry. He got together with people, and he had a meal. I was reading a book this week. If you read through the book of Luke, almost everywhere in the book of Luke, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or leaving a meal. All of his ministry is built around that. Jesus was called a glutton and a drunkard. Why? Because he was always hanging out with people and eating meals together. That's how he did ministry. That's how he learned their stories. From the earliest days of Providence, we have built our strategy around sharing meals together. That's a big reason why Front Porch communities are such a big part of our structure. Because there's something about sharing a meal with others. That's why I encourage you guys, have people over to your house. Eat dinner together. Do things together. When you put people around a table or a fire pit or a picnic table and and you start talking, what, what happens? What happens when you gather around a table together? You share stories, right? You start telling stories. And this is what Jesus is doing here. He's teaching here in the synagogue. But what's going to happen is he's going to go, we're going to see this here in just a second, he's going to go in Luke 22, and he's going to gather his disciples around the table whenever he institutes the Lord's Supper. And he's going to tell a story. And this is what we are doing whenever we put forth out these elements, and we gather around a table to take the Lord's Supper. We are telling a story. We're telling a story to one another. We're telling a story to ourselves. And it's a story that often revolves around food. Now, this story begins at the very beginning of Scripture. You go all the way back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Adam and Eve are placed in a garden. They're tasked to tend to the garden and to keep it. And they're also told what? Not to eat. Not to eat of the tree of the good, of the knowledge of good and evil. Yet the first meal, if you want to call it that, in the Bible is just that. Eve eating of the tree. And it is from that first meal that sin is brought into the world. You move forward just a few pages in your Bible. You move forward uh, to the book of Exodus and you have the story of the Passover. And there are so many ways that God could have instituted the Passover, but he chose to do it, at least in part, through a meal, through elements of a meal that are enacted. We learned a lot about this uh, back just before Easter, uh, whenever Melissa read, or yeah, whenever she um, walked us through the Passover Seder uh, and walked us through the different parts of that. It's a meal that's enacted over and over and over through generations and centuries to recount God's work in their people's lives. It's the Passover feast that Jesus the new sacrificial lamb, the lamb whose blood uh, must be spilled to protect us. It is this feast that Jesus institutes a new covenant that is made in his blood. And he starts talking about flesh and blood again, but it's a meal that he does this around. Let's just read that. Luke 22, verse 14. Luke chapter 22, verse 14. You see where Jesus institutes the new purpose behind this meal. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table, and the apostles with him. 
And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. So Jesus institutes this new meal for this new covenant. It's one that will replace this old covenant. And what it tells us, and, and, and what he tells us is that this bread that is broken is his body, and that it is broken for us. And that this cup that is poured out, this cup that is poured out is his blood, and it is poured out for us. So what does this mean? What does it mean that it's done? For us. Jesus is very clearly instituting or inserting himself into the significance of the meal. I think this is a direct application of the teaching from John 6, now here in Luke 22. He is now the replacement for the Passover lamb. It is his blood that will save his people from their sins, that will save us from our sins. It is his blood that sets us apart as God's people. And it is done for us. Friend, hear me. This is the heart of the Christian faith. Our sins forgiven. Our wrongs and our failures covered. The blood of Christ for us in our place. That it is the blood poured out for our redemption. So to quote uh, an author, Tim Chester, the first meal was in the garden and it was a meal of rebellion. But it's the Lord's Supper that is the meal for our redemption. Do you see the contrast in those two things? This is the story that is being told. So when we take the Lord's Supper, the story we're telling is of a new covenant and a new meal that is better and more powerful than the first one. Just as Jesus is the new Adam and Jesus succeeds where Adam failed, so the meal is the new meal. And where, where one meal was rebellion, the new one is about redemption. We take this meal, the Lord's Supper, because we celebrate the desperately needed redemption of our rebellious hearts. Praise God, we are a redeemed people and we celebrate as we should around a meal. Because that's what you do when you party, right? You celebrate around a table and around a meal. So this meal looks back. It looks back to the garden. It looks back to the Passover. In its present tense, it redeems. But that's not all of the story being told when we come to this table. There's more story to be told. Listen to Paul as he tries to kind of straighten out the people of Corinth who had been taking the Lord's Supper, but they'd been doing it all wrong. In fact, abusing it, getting drunk while they were taking the Lord's Supper because they were chugging the wine. And he says, you got to do it the right way. It matters how you do this. And we'll talk a lot about this next week. But listen to what he tells them and how to do the Lord's Supper. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, as Paul tries to bring order to the church at Corinth in the way they take the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 Verse 23, he says, So, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. 
do this in remembrance of me. So there we have the looking back, remembering the Passover and remembering the cross. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So you catch the rest of the story that's being told there? Yes, he says, in remembrance of me, in remembrance of Jesus, looking back, we are looking back to the garden, we are looking back to the cross, we are looking back to the death of Jesus, but what else? You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So the final part of this story is not about looking back, but about looking forward, about looking at what is to come. That there is a day when we will not take these elements that we are looking forward to. When we will not eat at this table. But instead there is something much better in store for us. Y'all ever go shopping at like Sam's or Costco or Trader Joe's or any of those kind of places? This is twice, two weeks in a row I think Costco has made it into my sermon, which is a problem. But you guys ever, you guys ever like go to those places like pre-pandemic? What are you always going to get when you go to those places? Samples. You're going to get samples. You're going to get the sample, whatever it is they're trying to sell you uh, that is there. Now, they're not trying to feed you. They're just trying to get you to taste just a little bit so you'll buy a product. They're not replacing the meal. They just want to whet your appetite and make you then go buy the whole thing. They want to give you just enough to make you want more. Or how about this? You go to your, uh, you know, to your mom's house or to your grandma's house, and she's making brownies or she's baking a cake. What are you going to fight your brother and sister for? What are, you going to fight, what are you going to fight your cousins for? That's right, the beater. Lick the spoon. Lick the bowl. You're going to fight. You're going to have to figure out who's going to... And why do you want that? Because you don't want to wait for it to be cooked. You don't want to wait for it to be finished. You don't want the whole thing. You want that taste right now. You want to get your fix right then. And it, 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 you know something else is coming that's bigger, that's great, that's awesome, but you want to lick the spoon. You want to get that, that, that hit of chocolate right then. It's just a foretaste of what's coming. Just a foretaste of what's coming. That's kind of how the Lord's Supper works. It's samples at Costco. It's not even good samples. Like, especially these things right here. These things are gross. Like, the, the little wafer you get at the top, it's like plastic. I mean, it's not very good, right? The juice, I have no idea how old this is. It's, everything's within the expiration date on the box, but it, like, it's not very good. It's not good samples. It's not supposed to be good because it's not the main course and it's not the real thing. It's a shadow. It's a foretaste of what is to come. But in Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, he tells us what is to come. In Isaiah chapter 25, he says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine and well-refined. It is a feast. It is a banquet is what it is called in Revelation chapter 19. We have a banquet at the wedding supper of the Lamb that is waiting for us. It is there for us and we will partake of that. We will eat and we will drink deeply of the grace of God. This is just a foretaste. It's just a lick of the spoon. 
But when we come together and we eat this meal, when we participate in this and we take the Lord's Supper, we are reminded of what Christ has done, of what God has done. We are reminded of our rebellion and we are reminded of our restoration and our redemption. We rehearse that. We celebrate that. We, 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 we tell that story at this table. And we tell the story of the day when we will come around another table and we will, we will celebrate and we will feast together. Not just licking the spoon, but a full banquet. That is our story. It's the story we tell every time we come to this table. And we need to know that story. And we need to wake up in the morning breathing that story in. That story needs to affect every relationship that we have. The way we love our spouse, the way we care for our kids, the way that we walk into our jobs, the way that we do every relationship needs to be impacted by this story. It's not a story you walk away from at the end of the night and you think, that was a funny story, that was a good story that guy told. No, 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 this is a story you walk away and you say, that story changed me. As Tony was talking about the cross, that, that has to change the way that we do things. It has to change the way that we talk about things. It has to change things. And that story, that's the story Jesus tells when he has all the momentum and all the listening ears. He says, let me tell you a story about my flesh and my blood that will change everything. That's the story that he tells. Does he get as many followers? No, but the followers would have been there for the bread that will bring them back hungry again. But he tells the story to his disciples and he says, come and eat and drink and thirst and be hungry no more. That is what we come to celebrate. So this morning we're going to take these elements. You have these individual ones wrapped. If you would like to take those, you're not only more than welcome, you're encouraged to take these, but we also have uh, for the first time now in a couple years, we've got the other elements that are available. If you would like to take those uh, as well, you use your discretion, do what you would like to do there. Both are perfectly fine and perfectly acceptable. But you have the bread and you have the juice. You have the body broken. You have the blood spilled. We will, we will tell this story to ourselves and we will tell this story to one another. Next week, we'll come back together, and I'll answer some of your questions about the Lord's Supper. I'll try to get a little bit more practical. I'm trying to look at this from the big picture story view, and then next week, we'll talk about this on a more practical view, some of the questions that come with the Lord's Supper a lot. I think that will be extremely helpful for us as well. I'll tell you, too, one of the things that I want to do as a pastor is I would like for us to start taking the Lord's Supper much more regularly. We're still working on what that will look like and how we'll be able to do that. But this will become a much more regular part of what we do. You will see this much more often. Now this table is only for those that have, that have submitted their lives to this story. You cannot come together and celebrate the redemption and the forgiveness of your sins if you have not been forgiven of your sins. You cannot come and celebrate the redemption that you have been granted when you have not submitted your life to Christ in order to, to, to take part in this full meal. So this table is just for Christians, those that are following Christ. If you don't want to take these elements, you do not have to. Nobody's going to judge you if you stay seated. When I'm done here in just a second, I'll pray, and then the table will be open, and you're invited to come up. We'd ask that that would just be those that are following Christ. Parents, if, you're, uh, if your children have not made that commitment, take this as a teaching opportunity and talk to them about that. 
But this is just for those that are following Christ. But I will say, take and eat. Take and drink. To quote uh, one of my favorite pastors, Russell Moore, eat, drink, and be merry, for yesterday we were dead. But today we are alive. And we will feast in the house of Zion. Listen to the words of this hymn as I close. We will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. He has done great things. We will say together, we will feast and weep no more. That's a story. That's a compelling story. And that's the story we are about to tell together. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for a truer and a better story than the one this world is telling us. Thank you for a story that promises redemption, that doesn't just put forward the potential that perhaps life might be okay if we go down one of these trails that we might move or change or do differently, but instead the story that is put forth is that we can know our hearts are redeemed, that our sins are forgiven because of the blood of the cross. Father, I thank you for that story. Father, make us good storytellers because we have the best story to tell. Father, I pray that we would be compelled in our own lives to tell this story to everyone. That we would not keep it to ourselves, that we would not put it under a rock, put it under a bushel, but that we would shine that light and we would tell that story. Father, we thank you for this meal. We thank you for these elements. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. The table is open.